Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. It's uh, great to have you here. Uh, During this season of Lent, even the liturgy fasts, the things we do every week, there's some changes. And so one of the things that we don't do right now is we don't do the meet and greet time. And we do rise and we do listen uh, to the reading of scripture. Sometimes it's easy to listen to that. Sometimes it's really challenging. This one today is one of those ones that I, as I read through the book of Jeremiah, I came across it and I said, for some reason this stands out and I have no desire to teach it. I tried to find someone else to do it and everyone said no. Uh, That's not true. (laughs) But here we go. Hear this word. And the response is, uh, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may not feel that way, but that's the response. Announce this to the descendants of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. But these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives autumn and spring rains in season, who assures us of the regular weeks of the harvest. Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Among my people are the wicked, who lie in wait like men who snare birds, and like those who set traps to catch people. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful, and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not declare, avenge myself on such a nation as this? As a horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, yes, as I say, Jeremiah, comforting words for us. Please be seated. And and we get to embrace what is he saying to us in this day and in this generation? And are we willing to hear it uh, in this series on Jeremiah? If you have questions, we have a podcast on Thursday afternoon. Uh, someone described it to me the other day as it's like having a meal with someone. I was like, I like that image. Like, come and join us for a meal. It's at 11 o'clock on Thursday, so you may be busy, uh, but it's available any other time. And so you can drop in and just uh, enjoy some good questions and conversation uh, around this sermon and other topics as they come up. We're in this season. 
yes, in the book of Jeremiah, but also this season of Lent that fits into the church calendar right at this point before Easter and Resurrection Sunday. It's, it's where we focus on the idea of God for us. We prepare ourselves for Resurrection Sunday. I have regularly over the years thought this, I get out of Easter what I put into Lent. I get out of Easter what I put into Lent, this process of contemplation, of building towards Resurrection Sunday actually makes it all the richer when we finally get there. A question that I'm just asking us to hold during the season, when I wake up on Resurrection Sunday morning, how will I be different? What am I preparing for? What am I preparing for? As we look at the history of how Lent has worked in the church, these three themes come up a lot. Fasting, the idea of going without something for a season. Maybe you're doing something, maybe you've given up something uh, in order to embrace this season. Lament, we'll talk about that more next week, something that the, the Western church does not do well, this sense of, of almost outrage and, and despair at how the world is at times. And then repentance, this turning back towards God. It's the reason that I said, when you hear Lent, think fast, lament, and repent. But there's another practice, at least, that lands firmly in amongst the, the ideas of Lent that, that is really important, and it's this one. It's generosity. It's generosity. Now, if you're like me, you hear that word and you might say, ah, I don't love that word. Now, there's some people in the room, you are decidedly generous people. It's a gift. You have resources, you give them out, and you're generous with them, and that's an incredible thing. There's some of you in the room that would say, I have no resources. I literally came in here limping. I, I, I'm not sure whether I'll have enough money to cover the week. I, I'm in the middle of those two things. I have some resources. I'm not worried about the money running out this week, but I, by nature, as a confession, would say this. I am not a generous person. Actually, let me change that just a touch. I'm generous with time. I'm generous with energy, but I'm not generous with money. It is a learned behavior for me. Sometimes I wonder if it's because growing up, we never really had a lot of resources. And so when some money came along, my, my attitude was, gimme, gimme, gimme. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna keep it all with me. I, I just felt like it was this moment of like, oh, thank goodness, there's something there to spend on something that I went. I am not good at sharing financial resources. It, it is work for me. And I also think, regardless of which of those categories you might fall into, there's a discomfort at times with talking about money. In the TV show Downton Abbey, the wonderful dowager countess played, with, uh, by, played by Maggie Smith uh, is introduced with these first lines, oh good, let's talk about money. She's meeting the new heir of the estate, and he comes from a lower class of family where money was a constant conversation. And she says, no, we, we don't talk about money because we have money. It's only the people that don't have it that talk about it. And some of those attitudes, maybe they stick with us. Maybe we're just uncomfortable with the subject. But where Jeremiah lands us today makes it almost unavoidable for us to have conversations around money. So for those of you catching up, well, let's catch you up. When I started this series, I said, if you could read 2 Kings chapter 22 through 25, it would really help you understand some of the historical context. This is 2 Kings 22. We're told Josiah, 
the king, was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. The, the first part of the book, Jeremiah, is located in the reign of this king, Josiah. I'm going to show you a graph that some of you, and this is dangerous because it's, it's the day where everyone wants more sleep. Um, I'm going to show you something that might send you instantly to sleep. This is a list of the kings of Judah and Israel. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, this is an amazing resource. Get your phone out. I'm going to take a picture. Some of you are like, I, I, this is, that's a lot. Um, these are the kings of Israel on the right. They're red because all of them were bad. This is the kings of Judah on the left. Some of them are green because some of them were good. And then some of them are red because some of them were bad. Josiah follows two kings, Manasseh and Amnon. Manasseh was a terrible king until the very last moment of his life. He was possibly the worst king that Israel had. The nation was a mess. Amnon, his son, became king for a couple of years. Nation still pretty much a mess. Then his own people killed him and made his son, Josiah, the king. If it sounds like this show, that's actually a really good perspective on a lot of the Old Testament history. There is a lot going on, a lot of people being overthrown, a lot of people being killed, uh, and sometimes you're just trying to track with who, wait, who is the king now? What's going on? There are these ups and downs that we're really working to follow. There's a reason that John Bright says this, seldom has a nation experienced so many dramatically sudden reversals of fortune in so relatively short time. There's this history that undulates and we're trying to keep up with it. But within this reign of this King Jeremiah, something really important happens. We read these words, his mother's, oh sorry, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and he followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Josiah in amongst a load of bad kings becomes a good king. Why? In the middle of his reign, through apparently random chance, one of the priests discovers something called the book of the law. The book we now know as Deuteronomy. Suddenly the people have this eye-opening moment where they say, we have not been following how God has called us to live. We, have no, we were so far off, we're going to have a come to Jesus moment. They didn't say Jesus in those moments. I don't want to give you that kind of anachronism. But, um, but there's this moment where everything turns around. Suddenly everything changes in the reign of this king, Josiah. Or does it? In 2 Kings we read everything changes. There's this moment of repentance. The people start obeying. But Jeremiah is located in exactly the same historical period. And Jeremiah doesn't seem convinced that anything has changed at all. In actual fact, in chapter 5, this section we'll look at today. Last week, we kind of covered section, chapters 2 through 4, which is one complete section. This week, we'll do chapters 5 through 7, another complete section. In chapter 5 and verse 1, Jeremiah is told, go up and down the streets of Jerusalem, look around and consider, search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. Although they say as surely as the Lord lives, still they are swearing falsely. 
Jeremiah, this prophet, is sent to take a stroll around the city of Jerusalem. Now, that to me sounds terrifying. Picture Jeremiah, he's kind of this salty sort of guy, and he's wandering into every sort of conversation. He's like, so what's going on here? Then it's just got that vision of like, oh, I'm uncomfortable. Seems like a policeman turning up whenever you are like, not doing anything wrong, but you feel really suspicious for just a moment. Jeremiah's given this task of going and investigating the city, and everywhere he goes, he finds the same story. On the surface, things are better, but there's this undercurrent, and it seems nothing at the heart level has really changed at all. The Jewish understanding of how the world worked was this. There is God and his rule up in heaven somewhere, and then there's earth and its rule and its rulers, and somewhere the two should be in alignment. And the question here is, are they? The the question is, how does heaven feel about events on earth? Or phrased a different way, are heaven and earth on the same page? The people of Jerusalem say, yes, absolutely. Full harmony, everything is good. They even say that the prophets that are predicting disaster, well, they're just wrong. They have lied about the Lord. They said he will do nothing. No harm will come to us. He will never, we will never see sword or famine. The prophets are but wind. The word is not in them. So let, them, let what they say be done to them. In the, the eyes of the people, everything's good. Everything's fine. The, the change has been enough. Jeremiah, not convinced. He sees disharmony. And in chapter 7, he gives the first of his really incredible sermons. And in the middle of it, he, he lands fire and brimstone with this. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. When Jeremiah looks at what changed in this finding of the book of the law, he says, what changed is this. People started going to the temple again, but their actions didn't change. He lands on that language that we may be familiar with, that idea of, well, I'm a Sunday type Christian. I did ministry for a while in the Northeast. The Northeast is this fascinating area for church because nobody goes if they go, sometimes they'll even say, I don't go, because that's the, that's the way that society works. Whereas if you go to the south, then, well, then people don't go to church, and they say they do. North, you go and say you don't. South, you don't and say you do. And that's just how it works. But that idea of just being a Sunday morning Christian is familiar to all of us wherever we are from. And Jeremiah says, that's what you guys are doing. One minute, you're in the temple. And the next minute, you're doing all of those different things. And you say that everything's fine. You say that everything's changed. This is the context of Jeremiah 5 through 7. And in the middle of it, he picks out this image to describe who these people are. And it's an image that has just had me going all the last couple of weeks because it seems to speak at times directly to me And I don't always like that. But before we get there, and part of the reason I didn't want to teach this passage is because it's really important that you understand something about how Hebrew poetry works. I'm going to give you a, try and catch you up on seminary in about the next three or four minutes. So so generally Hebrew poetry works like this. There's A and then there's B. There's the first half of the sentence or first half of the, the line and then there's the second half of the line. Sometimes it's really simple. Sometimes it's just A equals B. They're the same. 
A really simple version of that might be, my soul magnifies the Lord. My heart rejoices in God, my Savior. Centrally, the same thing said over twice. And that's really easy to understand. Sometimes, in poetry, A equals B. Sometimes, A is the opposite to B. So sometimes it switches. And sometimes you read something and then the next part of it is the opposite to that. Sometimes A is singular. So sometimes it might say, my soul glorifies God. Your souls magnify God, our Savior. Sometimes it works like that. And then sometimes, well, it's just A is strangely connected to B. And it makes sense in the words of the person speaking it. And we are a bunch of people that are saying, wait, what? We need to catch us up, like include us in the conversation. This image is one of those times. So let's start here. Verse 23, if you're reading along in a text of chapter 5. These people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives autumn and spring rains in season, who assures us of the regular weeks of the harvest. They do not recognize that God is the one who provides everything that they have, that their existence depends on him. Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Among my people are the wicked who lie in wait like men who snare birds and like those who set traps to catch people. Among my people are the wicked who lie in wait like men who snare birds and like those who set traps to catch people. First, this group of people do not acknowledge that every resource that they have, everything that is incoming, comes from God. And second, it seems, they are people that operate on the suffering and misery of other people. Then he moves on. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of of deceit. I was going to put a bird in here, so when I pulled the thing off, there was a bird sat there, and then I realized I'm a pastor, not David Copperfield, and it might just be a little bit weird, so I just left the empty cage just as an image for you. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. So we've gone from people who trap birds and put them in cages, and the image from Jer- for Jeremiah might have come from being in the temple, where there would be people selling birds in cages that were packed full of birds. It might have been from images of birds that were for show to give off a sense of wealth and all of those different things. But regardless, there are people who do not recognize everything comes from God, who now take advantage of other people who um, are now suffering because of them. And now he paints a picture of these people who have become rich, like cages full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful. They have grown fat and sleek. And somewhere, Jeremiah holds this image of birds in a cage and then describes in this almost avian way this picture of a person with all of this wealth incoming who is now fat and sleek themselves. A very avian type phrase, you are now fat and sleek. And we're almost left with this picture of like, who's in the cage at this point? Because it seems like the people that lived their lives off the suffering of others and now in some ways are prison themselves. They have become rich and powerful. They have grown fat and sleek and we're almost left with the attachment of them in cages and that's what Jeremiah leaves us with. 
There are people who do not recognize everything has come from God. They are building wealth by taking advantage of others. And now there they are, rich and powerful, and have grown fat and sleek. Is their condition good? Is their condition bad? What will the future be for this people that he talks about? And then he gets to the crux of just what he sees them do or what his major objection to their life is. They, their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the cause of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. Jeremiah is appalled by what he sees in society around him. There are people who are receiving wealth and they're abusing the system to gain more and more and more and more, and yet they won't share anything with those who need it most. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this, a horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority, and my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? What does this passage say to us in the 21st century? I don't suspect there's anyone that would categorize the way we live as being centered around trapping birds or trapping people, human lives, all of those different things. Does it have anything to say to us? And how do we feel when it starts to talk about using financial resources for justice, for caring for those that have the least? I would suggest across this passage, Jeremiah's focus is centered on those with resources. He wants them to be clear on how they got those resources, the manner in which they add to those resources, and how they use those resources. And that hits me directly. Because as I said at the beginning, I land in that middle group. I'm someone who is not by nature a generous person. And I'm not by some nature someone who is struggling every single week to make ends meet. I land in that middle part of I have something. What am I doing with that something? You could boil this question down to this. How do I see my stuff? And that's a fascinating question. Because it moves us to the conversation around ownership. And just what is ownership anyway? So a question I think my wife and I asked each other more times than any other question in the first probably 10 years that we were married. It's this one. Will we ever be able to own our own home? Will we ever be able to own our own home? We lived for the first few years we were married, like right on the breadline. We, we would rent a place for a while and it would seem really expensive, like we didn't have enough resources to cover it. We lived with Laura's parents a couple of times and we, we constantly thought, well, we feel like we should be able to buy somewhere to live, to own, to have as our own, to shape as we want to shape it. And yet, it felt like saving for a down payment just didn't work. We felt like we would never quite have enough. And that seems to be the dream, right? To have that kind of ownership. I even grabbed a picture of the dream for you. It's like the classically like two kids. There's a briefcase which I believe signifies wealth or something. There's a guy in a bad suit and the pink dress and there's the golden retriever which might be the most American thing there is except for a white picket fence which is, is almost a uniquely American Thing. You buy some land, it's maybe half an acre, and you build a house and you put a white picket fence around it. And it's this moment of saying, this is good. I've achieved one of the central dreams of life. 
The American dream could be defined as the ideal that every citizen of the United States should have an equal opportunity to achieve success and prosperity through hard work, determination, and initiative. Somewhat ironically, this definition comes from the Oxford English Dictionary, and I don't know if they know anything about the American dream or, or an authority on it, but it felt right to me. The writer Miranda Dutcher says this, white picket fences symbolized success. They showed money and power. It was essentially the American dream in an inanimate object. It's this desire to own something, to have something that, that was natural to Laura and I and something we longed for, perhaps something some of you would say that you still long for or something that you celebrate as something that, yes, I have this to own. But what do we mean by own? What do we mean by ownership? And to get to the heart of that, I want to ask you a question that, that's kind of abstract, uh, abstract. It's this one. Who owns 40 Wall Street? Who owns 40 Wall Street? You may not know where 40 Wall Street is. This is 40 Wall Street in the middle of Manhattan. It's this big, tall building valued most recently at $176 million. And the name of the owner is on the front of the building. It's the Trump building. So the simple answer would be, well, Donald Trump owns 40 Wall Street, right? Or does he? Donald Trump bought 40 Wall Street in the 90s from this guy. This is Ferdinand Marcos, formerly the ruler of the Philippines. He bought 40 Wall Street with money that he stole from the people of the Philippines. So if he sold 40 Wall Street to Donald Trump, can he really sell it? Do the people of the Philippines own 40 Wall Street? Does Fernando Marcos own 40 Wall Street? Does Donald Trump own 40 Wall Street? Who owns 40 Wall Street? The answer is none of them own 40 Wall Street. 40 Wall Street's actually owned by this guy. They own the building, but he owns the land. He's a German financier, uh, and he's owned it for years. So is the answer, well, he owns 40 Wall Street? Well, does he own 40 Wall Street? He bought 40 Wall Street from this place. This is Trinity Church in the heart of New York City. They own more land than almost any other organization in, in New York City. They sold him 40 Wall Street, but was it ever really theirs? Do they own 40 Wall Street? According to a whole bunch of people in Wales, they don't. According to a whole bunch of people in Wales, in 1702, Queen Anne of England gave this part of Manhattan to a pirate for helping us set up blockades against the Spanish. So they say, no, 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 we own 40 Wall Street and we want it back. It was bequeathed to us and we can track it over generations. It's specifically promised that the land belongs to us. And considering they live in Port Talbot in Wales, which is possibly the worst place on the world, there's probably someone here from Port Talbot now. Well, it's just the odds. But you can understand them wanting to move perhaps to Midtown Manhattan. Do they own 40 Wall Street? Well, the Dutch used to own 40 Wall Street before the English and the English took it from them. So do the Dutch actually own 40 Wall Street? Well, they bought it off the Indians. They bought it for $24 in the 17th century. And the Indian tribe that sold it to them sold it to them as a joke because they believe nobody can own the land. 
It would just be like me saying to you, I have a great section of sky over the Rocky Mountains that I'd like to sell you. How much would you like to give it for me? Ownership is strange. We might ask who owns 40 Wall Street, but we might ask who owns anything. And in Psalm 24, we're specifically told this. Oh, I deleted my Psalm for 24. Oh, there it is. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. While we live in a country that enables us to own property legally, and that may well be a wonderful thing, spiritually, the word of Psalm says this, you don't own anything. You don't own anything. I don't own anything. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, that includes what you have, and includes what I have. When we ask who owns 40 Wall Street, the answer is, According to God, nobody except God really owns 40 Wall Street. It's maybe for this reason that in Luke chapter 16, Jesus starts to unpack this concept that I want us to land on. Today, after teaching a parable on wealth, he says this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with little will also be dishonest with much. If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches, and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus, in describing what it is to look after wealth, never calls you and I owners of that wealth. He only calls us stewards. When Jesus talks about our stuff, he never identifies us as an owner. He uses the language of steward, not an owner or a king. And he goes on to say this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So we may look at the Jeremiah passage and say, I'm not the sort of person that would go and trap an innocent person. I'm not the sort of person that takes my wealth from other people. But we might look at this passage and say, I do recognize that I have a tendency to serve money and that sometimes the ownership isn't my ownership of it, it's its ownership of me. I build a cage and I end up in it. I build wealth and it ends up owning me. The writer Kingsley Banwell says this, everything that comes from God must go back to God. Things become dysfunctional when they remain with man. Don't give thanks to God for things that he gave and deny him access to them for his use. C.S. Lewis provocatively and somewhat irritatingly to me says this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. To which I, as a person sitting in the middle ground of not generous and not poor, says, ouch, I don't like that word. So I guess my question for each, each one of us, and the one I'm wrestling with myself is, are you an owner or, or are you a steward? And if you're not sure on those concepts yet, let me give you a, sh a short example of them. So, supposing you own a house, and you say to me, I'm going on vacation, Alex, could you please come and just let the dog out and, and make sure he's fed and, and, and just make sure everything's safe, and, and I just don't turn up. I never, never get to your house. Well, well that's being a bad steward. 
And, and I'm not likely to do that because I like you and I like our relationship. But, but, but there's another possible direction I might go that's not stewardship. It might be that you come back from your trip and you go to put your key in the door and it doesn't turn. In actual fact, the key doesn't fit at all and you look through the window and I've moved my Xbox and my couch in and I'm sat on the couch and I'm just playing away, just oblivious to your knocking on the door and everything in the house now looks different. It's all been moved around and maybe been changed over and then you look at the front door and it says Walton on the front door in place of your name. That's not bad stewardship. That's actually ownership. And somewhere, the tension between how we see our stuff is locked in that question. Do you see yourself as an owner of what you have, or are you simply a steward? Most of us in this room are probably not wired to be bad stewards, but we're probably wired to become owners. I regularly move from steward to owner. And then there's another question that speaks to me particularly too. Because even when I land on the side of steward, the follow-up question might be, what kind of steward are you? Because I realized something about myself not long ago. I realized I found a key get-out from generosity, even when I was thinking as a steward. All I had to do was say to myself this, I'm just being careful with God's money. I'm just being careful with God's resources. And so every time there was an opportunity for generosity, I got to look at the situation and say, huh, what would they do with that money? Might just waste it. Probably buy drugs with it. Might do something I don't agree with with it. Maybe not a worthy cause. There might be a better cause that's going to come just down the line. And what happens if this better cause has turned up and I've already given away the resources I have? I started to look at it and say, I'm just going to be careful with God's resources, and then I hit this huge problem. God is rarely careful with his resources. He's rarely careful with his resources. He paints sunrises with no attention to how many people woke up to see them. He makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He welcomes home prodigals that have wasted his resources and he gives them more resources. God is rarely careful with his own resources and I became aware of the fact that, that when I say I'm just being careful with this re God's resources, it just enabled me to keep more of them. Was I an owner? Was I a steward? I'm not sure. But I know I was just trying to keep hold of what I had. The writer Josh Stimley says this, the difference between ownership and stewardship is that you can do what you want with what you own. When you become a steward, you recognize that you have just as much control as an owner, but a responsibility that's greater than yourself. With the resources I, that I have as a steward, my responsibility is this, to ask what kind of things would God do with his resources? And rarely is the central question, how careful can I be? seems so often the central question is how generous can I be? I tried to delete this slide like three times and it still ends up in there and I don't like it. I don't want it to be in there. It's John Wesley and I love John Wesley, but this, I read it and I was like, John, you've hurt me. <laughs> I don't want you to say these kind of things. Do you not know that God entrusted you with that money all above what buys necessities for your families to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to help the stranger? the widow, the fatherless, 
and indeed as far as it will go to relieve the wants of all mankind. How can you, how dare you defraud the Lord by applying it to any other purpose? Amen. I don't know if I agree with everything. I don't know if you should agree with everything. I'm still wrestling with this quote myself. But when I read it, what I loved was this was a guy that did what he said. When he was at university, he was given an allowance of $30, and he realized he could live on 28, so he gave two away. When he moved into the final year, his parents increased his allowance to $60, and he realized he could still live on $28, so he gave 32 of it away. It's a man who took this and said, this is my principle, and I don't know if it's mine yet, and my job is to ask this, is that how Jesus would call me to live? What's my generosity level? How am I called to steward the resources that God has given me that I can never really, truly own? A picture image that helped me kind of wrestle with this just a little bit more, and maybe helps you too, is this. Uh, we, last week we talked about the Colorado really briefly. This is a picture of it in full flight. It's deep and it's rich and it's gorgeous. This is it when it gets to Mexico across the other side of the border as the dams have slowly taken all the water away. A couple of conversations that I heard around this were these. This is Evelyn Batista, 14 years old from the Capupa tribe in Mexico. We've heard stories from my mom about how she used to play and swim in the Colorado River when she was little, but we've never experienced it. I heard that over the border, the water is so clear they can even see the fish. Just upstream, 20 miles across the border, David Baraja. It's so hot, we come here all the time. The kids love the water. We often catch catfish, bass, and bluegill. I didn't know there's no river in Mexico. Wow. I would say sometimes I just remain delightfully oblivious to the condition of people further downstream. I'm so interested in being careful with the water that I have right now. But I don't really think about who might need it. One of the questions I'm trying to ask myself more regularly is this. When can I open up the dams? When can I release the water downstream? How can I use generosity to change the lives of people all around me? How can I become more aware of what those needs are? Every time I try to push this idea away, push this teaching away, I'm confronted with the next thing that Jesus said in Luke 16. It's really inconveniently placed for someone like me who would like to push this aside and say, I don't want to do this kind of thing. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. One of the questions I ask, get to ask myself is this. God, what do you see in my heart? What do you see in terms of generosity? What am I desperately trying to hold on, hold on to? What have I become an owner of? How can I be a better steward, a steward who asks the sorts of questions you would ask? As we are every week in this Lenten series, this is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. It's the voice of Jesus to us. Awake, O sleeper and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. As we contemplate for just a little while, Aaron's gonna come lead us in a song. It's called Cages. It's a chance to sit and contemplate. 
It's a chance to contemplate how much you own and how much of it owns you. How you might have built cages and found yourself to be sitting inside of them. It's a chance to contemplate generosity. And so I've given us some questions to contemplate as he sings. Am I a steward or an owner? How would I define my generosity level? What is my giving pain level? Do I overthink generosity? Where do I see a need? How can I meet it? And how do I do this believing Jesus wants me to proceed in joy, not in guilt? Together we confess that a generous spirit does not always accompany our acts of giving. When we come back, I'm going to read this confession. And if you'd like to read it with me, you are welcome to. If you land on that area of deep need, you're not sure how the finances are going to add up. The question might be, what does generosity mean for you? If you land on that side of incredible generosity, which I know some of you do, maybe you're just good this week. If you find that you join me in the middle, maybe the question is, what next? God, as we begin to contemplate, would you speak to our hearts? Whether we're here in the day, south, at home, live or later, listening on podcast, processing at some other point, there's a river of resources that you have given. So many of us have some of those. What questions do we ask? How are you calling us to live? Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.